Hi, I'm Angelique Edmonds and welcome to Place Agency. We've brought together six extraordinary people to discuss three themes that contribute to the relationships between design process and social outcomes. The themes of social, trust and diversity are discussed in separate episodes with each pair of conversation partners. This is a deep dive episode focused on the role of trust in our nine-part series about agency and place. Our six conversation partners span Australia and the United Kingdom across both architectural practice and academia. They are Catherine Ramsey from Crocs and Ramsey, Samantha Donnelly from her own private practice and teaching at UTS, Flora Samuel, the Royal Institute of British Architects Vice President of Research, Angela Dapper, a principal in the London studio of Grimshaw, and Emma Williamson and Nick Juniper from the Fulcrum Agency in Fremantle. I'd like to acknowledge that this program was made possible with support from the Alastair Swain Foundation. Find out more at alastairswainfoundation.org. As your host for the series, I've been working in this area for the last two decades with a passion for how we can elevate design for social impact. My practice work has consulted for local, state and federal governments in parallel with teaching over the past two decades and most recently at the University of South Australia. A lot of my contribution to these conversations is informed by my own practice research presented in my 2020 book, Connecting People, Place and Design. In this episode, you'll hear from Emma Williamson, who is co-founder and partner at the Fulcrum Agency and has nearly 30 years' experience working in design practice. Emma's renowned for her progressive approach to business and her skills and experience in project critique. You'll also hear from Nick Juniper, who is Associate Principal at the Fulcrum Agency and a registered architect with 25 years' experience. Nick is focused on strengthening the relationship between project delivery, profitability and social impact, creating long-term benefits for clients, communities and practice. You'll find full bios for all of us in the show notes. Before we dive into hearing these conversations... I just want to clarify that as this is a deep dive which was recorded after an introductory conversation, you'll now be joining a conversation here midway through. Whilst this can be listened to as a standalone episode, you may find references to conversations presented in previous episodes. And now, it's time to share with you this enriching conversation with Emma and Nick, which I hope you'll enjoy. That brings us to a deeper dive in our conversation now to talk about the impact of trust. Because even though I think a little in what Nick was saying about the responses back from members of the community and Anna Diliacqua about the impact to them, there's a process of building trust that then Im- impacts on people's confidence. So I'd like to take a deep dive. There'll be two of these. And this first one is to ask you more about what you think about this relationship with trust. And to bring you in, I remember, Emma, you were in Adelaide not long ago as a a keynote speaker at an ACA lunch, and you fielded a question towards the end of the lunch, which was something to the effect like, how do you get that work? How do you get to work with clients like that? And I remember your answer was about cultivating trust and relationships and designing the task together. So I wanted to start by asking you, Emma, what are your thoughts on this, the importance of cultivating trust as a critical ingredient in supporting outcomes for social connection and social value? I think it's, I think relationships and trust are fundamental to the success of um, successful architecture. I just don't think we can create good um, 
outcomes if we don't have great relationships and that extends from our relationships with our clients to our relationships with builders if we're talking about delivering a project. All of that involves trust. So I think and where we work, the majority of our work is working um, with Aboriginal communities. So in in doing that over the years, what we've found is the importance of building up long-term relationships with communities, slowly over time building up trust. And the way that we do that is by turning up, by being present and not coming in and focusing on the delivery of one project and then exiting never to be seen again, but it's actually cultivating relationships with Indigenous organisations that means that we're able to help them to solve the multiple um, problems that they have so that they can move forward. And sometimes those problems are small in the sense that they uh, us, if they were to sit independently, they would be a small pro- bit of project management to resolve an issue, but they're massive in terms of the impacts in the community. And an example of that would be that Kieran is currently out in community and one of the communities he's in has had a septic system that has not been working for two years because somebody, no one has been able to project manage that sufficiently well and he happened to be in the community at the same time as the plumber so they were able to actually even though he was supposed to be doing something else reshift his focus to focus on the issues surrounding the septic system with the plumber negotiate that the plumber would stay for an extra day to do some extra investigative work and it looks like that issue will be solved so it's not Kieran isn't responsible for the for solving the problem but he's been there as a player who's helped to facilitate and get rid of that obstacle so that it could be solved and I think that you can't do that if you're just dropping in and out you need to actually be present and for me I think that those relationships and building of trust has been fundamental to the successful projects that we've delivered in communities. I don't it's know. Such, if, if it's you, such a brilliant example. Can I just say it reminds me of all of Paul Followers' work with Housing for Health. And oh, almost as Nick absolutely. as Nick mentioned before as well, if something's not working, the impact it has. Like the fact that a yeah, child has stopped going that, to school, if they haven't had a shower and they end up with a ear infection and they stop going to school and they miss yeah, their literacy milestone, it's it that's impacts right. their life forever simply because they couldn't have a shower. And Health Habitat has been, exactly. you know, they were absolutely and are maintained, they're absolutely fantastic in in this idea of turning up but also being practical problem solvers. So you don't just go and look at the problems of a building, you actually go there and you change the washer on the tap or you fix up whatever, whatever the things are that you can do within your skill set so that you're leaving things in better condition than when you observe them. Yeah, and I think that goes to that heart of that idea of trust. And I think for these communities, they have every reason not to trust a white consultant that flies into town or a government agency that comes to that comes to town to tell them how they should be doing things. They have every reason not to trust those kind of organisations and those bodies. And I think, you know, that that the the success of the work of working in those communities, the, the fundamental kind of relationship building, it, the relationship building is fundamental to the success of the project. And it has been 
challenging. There's no question that particularly over the last couple of years when travel has been reasonably difficult, it's been challenging to kind of maintain a consistent presence in communities, but that's what's required, that people actually come see you and see you again and know that there is a kind of opportunity to have conversations and know that there's kind of time allowed for those processes to unfold. You know, it, it's fundamental, I think, that kind of idea of trust in terms of working with those communities. I couldn't yeah. agree with you more. After living in an Aboriginal community in Arnhem Land myself for a year, about 20 years ago now in the Roper region, mm-hmm. and just that a whole year of living with a community does give you opportunity to create extraordinary bonds of trust and I know what a difference it made to getting things done in the time there. And that also brings me to another of the innovations of the Fulcrum Agency that I wanted to ask you about, which is your Room to Breathe program. So I'm going to ask you a little about it in a moment, but just for our listeners, I wanted to explain that some of them may already be familiar with the fact that in the Northern Territory in the delivery of housing for Aboriginal communities, the government have traditionally not been able to prioritise anything to do with renovation or alterations or additions or even the maintenance requirements, but they've privileged the delivery of brand new housing over and over again, despite groups like Health Habitat and others, probably yourselves, for years suggesting that actually there needed to be a better way and a system change. And from what I've read about what you've done with Room to Breathe, it seems that you have affected that system change. You've intervened in that um, system that wasn't really working to develop this program where you're essentially doing alterations and additions to Indigenous houses in more than 70 communities around the Territory. And I'm really interested to understand in the cultivation of trust, clearly that is trust with this whole series of communities who are ready to roll out that program with you but also the trust you must have had to foster within the Northern Territory government to have them agree to this it's a huge system change so I'm not sure who of you would like to speak to that but I'm really interested in what role trust might have played in this yeah I mean yeah I think I wish Kieran was part of this conversation because he has been most directly involved with that room to breathe program but I, I do know that as you've indicated there has been a bit of a fundamental shift in the understanding about how that how those repairs and maintenance project, projects and processes roll out. And it does come down to this idea that it's turning up and kind of literally going door to door in community and actually discussing with people who are living in houses what the pressures are on the house and what are the kind of what are the fixes to the house that are going to improve you know, their living conditions. It's a very kind of tailored approach. And again, that 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 has has time implications. I feel like it's really important to reiterate this idea that it takes time to kind of have those conversations and to kind of do it to do it well and to do it effectively. But also the idea, and this goes back to the work that Health Habitat has done, is that it's really important as part of maintaining that relationship of trust that to turn up and to be able to actually make some changes almost immediately. So you turn up with the repairs and maintenance guys with you while you're kind of taking the brief for what they need to do to extend their home the maintenance team can start to address some immediate issues in the house. So this idea that kind of we don't just turn up, have a conversation, disappear, and nothing happens because, you know, the process of tendering and documentation and construction, that there, there is some sort of sense of immediacy. And I think that really strengthens that idea of, of some trust. Also, with the way that program expanded was because it occurred in its first instance in group island and it was able so it wasn't 
part of the NT government's remit. It was what we were doing with the Alan Jinniyakwa Land Council, wasn't it, Nick? And so then it was through example and the success of that that the government said, actually, we'd like to look at expanding this. And so I guess this is a situation where, you know, thankfully our we didn't go in there thinking that we would impact the that model in the NT more broadly. We went in there looking at what the problem was on Groot because that was our client. But actually it was applicable to be expanded across. So when the opportunity arose, we were able to help to negotiate our way through that. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and the NT government saw real value in the way that we were approaching that work and we worked with them to develop a whole set of new design guidelines for the kind of room to breathe program. And that was guidelines around types of renovations that were applicable, but also guidelines about the kind of way that the process and the conversation rolled out. So yeah, that's been it's been particularly rewarding. The idea that kind of from from a project that happened on Groot that that, that work can impact some of the Northern Territory Kind of it, it seems like a, an amazing thing to be celebrating that you've actually gotten the NT government to be open to this and to, to consider now rolling it out over so many communities. So well done yeah, to you it guys. Is. It's important to note that Room to Breathe was a Labor government election policy formulated in opposition and put into place prior to their election in 2016. The Room to Breathe policy was informed by decades of advocacy and work by firms such as Tropo and Health Habitat. The Fulcrum Agency developed the program guidelines after Labor won the election. And again, it strikes me also, it's almost another example of building social infrastructure that then better supports the delivery of empowering hard infrastructure. Because it was like your investment in the relationships in Anandiliakwa first created a different process, which created a a better quality outcome and then that spoke for itself. I'm sure you advocated with the Northern Territory Government. Do you can either of you speak to how that came about with the Kieran would probably be the best place to speak about it, but I do I mean I think it is worth mentioning and I'm sure you'll probably know about this particular um, initiative, but the the idea of kind of the local decision making agreement that the Northern Territory Government has signed with the Anandiliakwa Land Council. And that basically over over a series of over a process of years, but will hand back responsibility for some key community infrastructure to the traditional owners of Groot Island. And that started with the kind of the housing program. And a lot of our work around the Room to Breathe program and the work that we've done with AHAC around processes of um, delivering new housing comes from this idea that the community is now taking responsibility for delivering that infrastructure. And eventually that will spread to health and it will eventually spread to education. We've worked on a kind of bilingual boarding school up um, in the archipelago, which is part of this idea of the traditional owners taking a more active um, role in deciding, making decisions around education. And eventually it it extends justice. So I think it's a really interesting and I think it's a first. So, you know, the, the NC government has really led the way in terms of this, this idea of handing back responsibility to, to decision-making to community. And we're just fortunate to have been part of that process. And so our contact with the NC government has been quite consistent and through that process. The outcomes having been successful, being more cost-effective to renovate than build new houses, 
that the individual approach to each house has the capacity to respond to cultural practices, as you said, and that people appreciate houses when they've been involved in the design process and feel empowered in their quality of life being improved because they've been able to make decisions for themselves. So it seems like all those things that are the, the advocacy points of social value are being demonstrated through this pro- through the Room to Breathe as a program. Yeah, I think that idea, and you just meant to touch on it there, this idea of empowerment is really, I feel like that's really at the heart of kind of what we're trying to achieve, particularly on group. This idea that people have a, a voice and a choice and they have agency and they have a real kind of, and, and it's been demonstrated through the kind of survey work that we've done as part of the Social Return on Design Investment Project that people are reporting, yeah, a, a, an increased sense of power really in the process. And you know, ultimately that means that kind of we as consultants are losing some power because there's a sort of transfer of power from what we're holding to what they're holding which I think is the best possible outcome. If we're out of work on group, I'd be really happy. <laughs> but it's it's almost like the in the transfer of power, there's actually the increase of value to the client, which is huge. Yeah, and that is also, that has a financial benefit to us all because it means we can start to reallocate funding because we're not having to spend it over and over again on just the delivery of new houses that haven't got haven't considered whether or not the what the client wants, what the user wants. So that that money that is saved because people are getting something that they will use well means that there can be more money for education or more money for health. So you've raised good points about diverse participation and focusing on you know equity and governance, and I do want to get into that in a minute. But just to stay on the trust for one more moment, what do you think are the challenges that are blocking our progress in building trust and what do you think designers can do? to catalyse progress in building greater trust? I think one of the, for me, my, and Nick probably has a lot more to add here, but one of the things that I think is that often a barrier between the us and the users. So if there's a project manager in the mix who doesn't really share those same values and is being driven to perform in a certain way because of different metrics that can be a huge barrier because you just can't get access and the same can be said for the issues of working to these kinds of time frames that don't allow time for consultation so what can you do well I guess you just try and wear charm someone to death um, so that you can find small gaps and have small wins and also I think choose sometimes you just have to choose your battles and there's no end to areas of need so if there's a huge obstacle now my maybe it's because I've turned 50 now I just think oh we just can't we can't actually spend all our time on that because I can see that the outcome is going to be unsatisfactory there's too many obstacles we're just going to redirect our energy somewhere where we can be useful yeah I think I agree with all of that and I would just reiterate this idea of time I think you know that that so often so often projects feel rushed at this at the early phase and yeah as you as as Emma suggested there's metrics that project managers are working against that that means that kind of there's this compromise of time and I think just one of the biggest that's one of the biggest challenges in building trust because building trust as we've discovered takes time and it takes Kind of multiple conversations and it takes multiple visits and, and those are 
and that's expensive in terms of for a client to understand the commitment to time in terms of consultancy. But it's fundamental, you know, this idea of being able to take time to find those, those, those right clients. And so many of the conversations that deliver really interesting outcomes for us, conversations that kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're the kind of they're the kind of bystander conversations. They, can't, they happen after the main meeting when you're hanging around. Um, and it may be a group of women that are talking to one of one of our kind of our female employees or it just it and it that it will only happen if you kind of allow the space and time to do that. And that's And I guess actually thinking now that sorry, Angelique, I was gonna say that's where the advocacy and this idea of the incremental change really comes in because if we're able to advocate for the value of this in the broader sense and then we're able to demonstrate the value and we're able to have access to the clients, the CEO of the organisation, we can advocate for bringing in this process and demonstrate the value. And therefore, when the team is assembled, which will include the project manager and all the other people, everyone understands that this is the expectation. We're going to do things a little bit differently. This is the reason why. And then you've got that time. So I, I guess there's a bit of strategy, just thinking about what you can do um, is you can be strategic in how you try and advocate for where what the value is of this process and get that bedded down at the beginning. Well, see, that's thank you. It seems to me that's the value of your tool because if you're going to build in more time to your fee structure or you can, if you need to build in more time to be able to deliver on what you're saying takes time to, de- to develop that trust, you've got to be able to justify the fees. And so your social return on design investment tool helps, as you were talking about, with the forecasting so you can demonstrate that this investment of time is worth it because of this outcome. Yeah, good on you again for developing the tool. And that concludes this deep dive in the nine-part series. I'd like to acknowledge that this program was made possible with support from the Alastair Swain Foundation. Find out more at alastairswainfoundation.org. Technical production was done by Andrew Limpenning of Big Boys Productions. And if you enjoyed this episode, please check out the rest of the series, share with your friends, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find out more of my work at schoolforcreatingchange.com and in my 2020 book, Connecting People, Place and Design.